I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Well, um, welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Uh, my name's Gareth Evans. I'm the film curator at the Whitechapel Gallery. It's a great pleasure to be hosting this special In Conversation evening with Chris Dark and Brian Dillon. I'll introduce them shortly. Um, but, of course, it's a huge pleasure to be here at the London Review Bookshop. Thanks, as always, to everyone here. I was last in the bookshop, I think, a couple of weeks ago, and I just got through the door, and I was confronted by a high volume of medieval obscenity. I mean, I know you just can't get the stuff, of course, but... It took me about a minute or two to get over that. I walked further into the shop, and, and uh, what, what I encountered was extraordinary. I was um, faced by the full shamanic regalia of northeastern Siberia. That took my breath away for a little bit. And then before I got to the counter, I encountered the very alluring legs of Neti Ivanova. This is to say that this is an incredibly eclectic shop, because all those three uh, encounters are actually encounters with books. And these are books that suggest the range of this shop's extraordinary stock. But also, crucially, I think, set us in mind of, of the, uh, the great life and work of Chris Marker, because he was equally eclectic. And in fact, he would have been drawn, I think, to all those things, um, uh, possibly in a slightly different order. But he would have been very attracted by the diversity of this stock. And we are here, of course, tonight to talk about him as a writer, a much less well-known aspect, of course, of his extraordinarily diverse and prolific oeuvre, but one in a way that actually anchors the many disparate parts of it together. And people much more qualified than myself, Chris and Brian, will be uh, taking uh, us through that body of work with this focus, uh, as I've said, on text and on the written. But, of course, text and image uh, fuse beautifully in Marker's work and take us into a third space, if you like, which is the nature of what he's uh, achieved with the essay over many different forms. Um, but we will also be looking at the novel, at short stories, at critical work, and also the published work that he was equally the graphic designer of, uh, which take us again into a, another dimension, shall we say. So we've got a very interesting evening lined up for you, of course, accompanied by clips and also spreads from Commentaire, one of his key publications. So hopefully by the end of the evening, we'll, we'll have a real sense of what it means to encounter Marker as a writer, and then we'll be able to promise we hope, some, uh, some uh, further encounters forward from that. But I'll, I'll leave that till the end. I'm going to ask uh, Chris, if he can, uh, to open for us. Chris is a writer, a critic, uh, published a number of books around film, but key for us this evening is the fact that he conceived and co-curated the, the great show, Chris Marker, Grim Without a Cat, which closes uh, this Sunday at Whitechapel, and edited the catalogue, which we're, in a sense, uh, anchoring as a publication this evening around. I'm going to ask Chris now, if he could, to set the scene for us, coming out of the show and into the catalogue, and then, of course, into this larger discussion. So, thank you, Chris. Thank you, Gareth. Um, uh, welcome, everybody, and thanks to the shop for having us. This is effectively the last event associated with the Whitechapel show, so there's a kind of valedictory feel to it. But it seems useful, in a way, to end with an aspect of Marker's work, which is less well-known, I think, to English audiences for the very simple fact that Marker, as a writer didn't have a great deal of material that was um, translated into English. <coughs> we'll come to one of the um, elements of his literary output that was translated into English in a little while. And this is partly because uh, Mark more or less effectively started his career, although he hated the term, 
as a writer. So he was, when he was recognised as a writer in France, it was in the post-war period, starting fairly immediately, actually, after the end of World War II, um, starting to publish in a journal called Esprit, uh, which was a sort of left Catholic uh, journal of ideas, an intellectual journal, a monthly journal, published by the uh, publishing house Edition du Seuil. And Marker worked for them as a contributor to this journal, and his, con- his contributions were varied. He wrote poems, short stories, reportage pieces, and inaugurated a little column called Actualité Imaginaire, or Imaginary Newsreels. This term is something we'll come back to again in relationship to his filmmaking. But roughly speaking, there was about <coughs> a 10-year period from, let's say, roughly 47 to 57, in which Marker's principal activity was that of a writer contributing, as I said, to Esprit, but also producing books as well, a novel and a series of uh, what you might call essay texts, one of which I have here, which is called Giraudou par lui-même, which is um, a study of the, of the French playwright and novelist Jean Giraudou, published again by Edition du Seuil. So Marker, the writer is that part of his early part of his career in French and of course it's this literary activity in some respects it doesn't quite cease it ceases certainly in terms of the, uh, the magnitude of, of output that characterises that ten years as he becomes a filmmaker but the, the writerly aspect of, of Marker's output transfers into writing for the screen both for his own films which are quickly called essay films, so the literary heritage in some, in some respects falls straight into the cinematic work, uh, but also in writing for others' films as well. Marker was known to be able to turn around a commentary for a short documentary film overnight if you needed it. If you could bribe him with a bottle of rum or a bottle of vodka, he'd stay up and he'd write, write these pieces. I'm not saying that because, you know... I knew that he was able to do that by bribing him through alcohol. But the stories from producers are numerous. They would prevail upon his good nature to turn this documentary footage that one of their filmmakers had shot into something special by writing a commentary. And in French, this tradition of writing commentaire for a certain kind of film in the post-war period uh, mark a kind of corner of the market in it. To the extent that the term commentaire in French kind of essay filmmaking circles is slightly derogatory, because if you split that word in half, it means commentaire, how to shut up. And we'll see an example of this shortly, actually. Marcus' style of writing commentaries in his early filmmaking is, well, let's say quite logorrheic. You know, there's a lot of talk over these images. But anyway, that's, that's where the, the literary output or the literary aspect of Marker's work migrates from um, the beginning of the career. So one of the things that we wanted to do, and one of the things that I wanted to do with the, the catalogue for the Whitechapel show was partly to try and contain within it some element that would continue what was in the show. What we tried to do with the show was to introduce as many different aspects of Marker's creative work to an English audience as possible. So not just as a filmmaker, multimedia artist, bookmaker, installation artist, photographer, etc., etc. Those of you who've seen the show will know what I'm talking about. But what we wanted to do with the catalogue was also to be able to have some artefacts, as it were, literary artefacts in the catalogue. 
that had not previously seen the light of day in English. So what I chose from the prolific output of the late 40s to mid-1950s was an essay and a short story that it would at least represent the two elements of Marker's literary output between fiction and uh, criticism, essayistic criticism. So one of the pieces is a piece of film criticism on Jean Cocteau's film Orphée, and the other is a short story called Till the End of Time, in English, Till the End of Time. I should also say as well that the interesting thing about getting this material into English was the process of translation. Mark is not easy to translate, <coughs> particularly the early, like, sort of like late 40s, early 50s writing. It's quite, to use the term precious sounds derogatory, and don't imply it, but it's quite precious French. And it was lucky that we had uh, two superb translators working on those texts. Um, Trista Salou, who has translated French for a mostly, well, not entirely, but about uh, film criticism from French to English, particularly the work of Michel Chillon um, on Stanley Kubrick, and Sophie Lewis, who's translated fiction um, into English, including the work of Marcel Aimé. And they did a fantastic job. Thank you very much, Chris. Yeah, just to take on uh, Sophie Lewis today, many of you, I'm sure, will know and other stories, the great uh, independent publisher uh, of which Sophie is a co-editor. And as Chris said, she's the translator of uh, Violette Le Duc recently and also Marcel Amy um, with Pushkin Press. So it's great they've both been able to contribute directly to the catalogue. But I think now we'll take a, a look at the first clip, if we could, which is Letter from Siberia. Chris, do you want to say anything before we see this? Or? This is one of the films that Soda has uh, re-released in a beautiful restoration. There's three on the Soda DVD, which has many other films as well, which have been restored and are available for the first time in Donkey's Years in the UK. This is Marker's second proper film, as it were. When I say proper, it's, it's his second personal film, and it's a, a travelogue film, and I thought it would be quite useful to look at sort of the first five minutes of it. letter from a distant land. Its name is Siberia. For most of us, that name suggests nothing but a frozen devil's island. And for the Tsarist General Andreevich, it was the biggest vacant lot in the world. Fortunately, there are more things on heaven and earth than any general, Siberian or not, has ever dreamed of. As I write, I let my eyes stray along the edge of a grove of birch trees, and I remember that in Russian, their name is a word of love, Birioska. This gash in the forest means a city has gone by like a wild animal. Follow the wrong trail and you may come to a bear or a tiger. Follow the right one and you'll come to a city. Angarsk, 180 miles from the railroad. The city was planned in 1947 but it took four years to cut a path through the forest, yard by yard, to reach the Trans-Siberian. The foundation stone was laid in 1951, 
Today it has 100,000 inhabitants, including the 35,000 children born during construction, natives of a city which didn't yet exist. When you've left the last house behind you, though, you're back in the Stone Age forest, the taiga. I'm writing you this letter from the edge of the world. According to a Siberian proverb, the forest was made by the devil. The devil did a good job. His forest is as big as the United States of America. But maybe the devil made the United States too. When he's not busy making forests or states, the devil steals people's souls. Or at least that was how the Siberians regarded death for many centuries. In this frozen ground, corpses never rot. In these graves, which rest on foundations of ice, life and death are separated by nothing more substantial than a breath of air. Bring back the breath, and the body is ready to live again, to come back and share in the slow, chilly existence of the wooden villages, rounding up stray horses, building snowplows, or leading herds on their pilgrimage to milder pastures. That uh, obviously gives us straight away this relationship between image and text, not least because it's called Letter from Siberia, and we'll carry that um, idea forward. But before that, I'd like to introduce Brian Dillon, who of course needs no introduction to LRB audiences, a multi-talented critic, commentator, and curator across disciplines, across time and place. Brian is particularly engaged at the moment, I think it's fair to say in Marker S terms, with Marker's novel, uh, which I will leave him to talk about. Brian, please. Okay. Uh, thanks very much, Gareth. Yeah, I want to talk about Le Curnet, um, Marker's only novel, although not, of course, his only fiction, and not, in fact, his only written fiction, as Chris has outlined uh, very neatly. Marker, in the immediate post-war period, begins as a writer. In fact, actually, I think he begins as an actor, at least an aspirant actor. So he's involved in theatre, and uh, theatre <coughs> is very important, I think, in the kind of intellectual and literary milieu that he's working in, uh, when he turns up at Edition de Soy and when he begins to work on the essays that Chris has already described uh, that he published in the journal Esprit. And Chris has also said you know, that this is uh, the milieu that he's writing out of at that point and to some degree, I think, trying to kind of extricate himself from creatively and intellectually, although it's incredibly enriching for him uh, professionally, is this milieu of a particular kind of left Catholicism. One of the striking things about uh, the novel, which is translated in 51 uh, as the forthright spirit, is that in some respects it's not the novel you might expect from Chris Marker. It's not straightforwardly, or rather complicatedly, essayistic in the way that the voiceovers, the commentary of the, the films are later. It's also not, it's not the nouveau roman. Marker knew people involved. He knew uh, Michel Boutot when he was very young. He knew people like Marguerite Duras, although he says Marguerite Duras never saw any of my films. So he's, he's quite careful later on to kind of distance himself from the kind of literary culture, literary context, that we might expect him to have been part of. And a lot of this is reflected in the novel. The novel is marketed oddly, both in France and in the UK when it's published, as a kind of adventure story. It's a novel about action. And it's about, specifically, the man of action. It inherits from the Second World War a kind of anxiety for, obviously for Marker, but also for his generation, about the place of the man of action in the post-war period. 
politically, spiritually, philosophically. The story concerns an international grouping of mostly young men who are working for an airline in French Indochina shortly after the war. And it's run by a character called Van Helsen, who's Dutch. His main pilot, or his, his most kind of accomplished pilot, is English. He's called Kelso. Kelso has a lover called Hélène, and then there are a couple of kind of uh, characters that remain kind of vague, that don't, as it were, kind of crystallize until later. Aguirre, who's a Swiss guard at a small airfield used by the, the airline, and Jerry, who's an American pilot. And the novel's divided very cleanly into two halves. In the first part, Kelso is in the air. He's flying a plane that is lost in a storm. And it's very unclear whether he's going to ever land, whether he's going to get back safely. So the first half of the novel is about waiting. Kelso survives, um, but is shot by Aguirre when he lands at the small airfield that Aguirre is guarding. The novel starts again. The second half is also about waiting, but Kelso is dying, and he's attended by Hélène, his lover. So you have this dual structure, this two-part structure, in which something is at stake, in which an event is being anticipated and is being worried away at in these long passages, long, very lyrical, uh, highly metaphorical, to some degree essayistic. I think one of the things that sort of survives out of the novel in Marker's writing for film, uh, one of the aspects of his essayistic voice later on is this very poised, um, Chris used the word, precious, I think it remains kind of precious in a, in a serious, not disparaging sense, but it's, a, it's highly highly metaphorical and I'm going to assume that not many people uh, in the room have actually read The Forthright Spirit um, as it's translated uh, in 51, so I thought we might look at uh, a couple of passages which you should have on your seat two pages, including the title page uh, from The Forthright Spirit, it's translated by Robert McKee and Terence Kilmartin and people will of course know Kilmartin as the reviser of the Scott Moncrief translation of Proust, also as editor of, of The Observer for many years, and many people will remember Robert Key as a journalist and uh, historian um, and broadcaster. If anybody knows, if there's an expert, more expert than us in the room, who knows how this relationship between those translators and André Deutsch, who published the book um, in his first publishing house, um, Alan Wingate, in 51. If anybody knows more about that, that kind of detail would be fascinating to hear. The novel begins um, like this. So it's a novel about action. It's also a novel, to some degree, about stasis and about reflection. It moves very starkly between passages of action and passages of this highly interiorized and highly metaphorical reflection, which is the reflection of each character in turn. But it begins like this. It begins with a disaster. An accident. It's nothing. It is quite literally nothing. There's the moment just before when the aircraft leaves the runway when a certain quality of silence, something static about the light all round it, seems to immobilize it, to make of it a petrifying fountain. So might a hurried angel strip a man of his soul a second before death. So is a bandage put over the eyes of a condemned man. And the moment afterwards, when the aircraft is no more than a dart stuck in the earth, a burnt-out grasshopper, a crucifix. Between the two moments, nothing. And this 
uh, reflection on the nature of the event, the kind of punctual, violent, sudden event, kind of comes back through the reflections of various, in fact, probably all of the, the main characters, but mostly Van Helsen, and secondly, Hélène, who's waiting for her lover Kelso to die later on. And gradually it becomes a reflection not only on catastrophe or on disaster or on the moment or the instant, it becomes a reflection on death and on the image of a dead body or a body that's kind of hovering between life and death. So you have a story that begins with a violent possible death that involves a man hovering between life and death, between past, present and future, and a woman who seems to, as it were, summon him back to the real world. So you can see, anybody who knows La Jetée, that there are kind of obvious prefiguring, at least structurally, um, uh, it obviously prefigures something in La Jetée. These passages, um, the kind of long, uh, reflective, poetic passages, begin still in the first half of the book to revolve around a notion of a kind of present, a present moment that links various kind of disparate geographic places, but also timescales. And there's this extraordinary, which is the second page that, that you have here, extraordinary passage in which radio, the radio that's connecting the pilot who's still in the air, Kelso, with the, the base of the airline, that's connecting all of these characters, gets bound up with um, a kind of view of this vastly expansive geography and of music, um, and of music traveling through the airwaves. One of the obvious influences, or it seems obvious to us, Tom McCarthy is not in the room, is he? If Tom McCarthy were in the room, we could ask him about the opening sentence, first of all, of his novel, uh, Remainder, and secondly, about the use of radio in his novel, Sea. There's something that I think McCarthy's been worrying away at that comes out of Marker's novel. So you have this amazing passage which repeats constantly a phrase somewhere a long way off. And in the clip that you've just seen, there is this you know, the gesture that Marker makes very often in the films, I am writing to you, but sometimes I am writing to you from, from a distance, from a long way off. I'm writing to you from a far country, which is an echo, obviously, conscious echo um, of Michaud. So this, this phrase keeps coming back, somewhere a long way off. Somewhere a long way off, the night was a vast altar laden with lamps, beginning that mysterious work of espionage in which every light is a signal to the gods. Beyond the walls of the besieged city went the call signs, the blinking lights, the clustering lights of houses. Somewhere a long way off, the night was soft and studded with gold. Under the great canvas, angels swung backwards and forwards in the beams of the arc lights, and to anticipate their fall, radio signals joined to weave an invisible net across the nocturnal circus. Somewhere a long way off, through the tapping of the Morse signals, like stuttering toads, deep voices crossed the stormless night, undisturbed by the east wind. Somewhere, a long way off, in an American town humming with machinery, a woman sang in front of an orchestra, standing in her long blue dress like the column of fire that guides an army. Her voice floated softly through the world, brooding over townships killed by the moon, where the white houses cast on the earth the shadow of their future ruins. And there are numerous moments in the novel where, on the one hand, you're stepping, as it were, out of time. And Marker uses this phrase, out of time, and being saved from time, as a way of thinking about this, this kind of fading out into sleep or fatigue when the pilots are flying. And ultimately, 
he uses it as a way of describing death. And the novel ends with Kelso's death, but also with this possibility raised by his lover, Hélène, that one could somehow reconstruct the entirety of Kelso's life. All of these disparate moments could somehow inhabit the one moment, which is the, the act or the gesture of her remembering. So there's very obviously, or one, one can posit at least, there's another kind of uh, foreshadowing um, of a lot of what's happening in, in La Jete, just purely at the level of, of plot, that sense of trying to recapture, to reconstruct a lost world via a kind of single or singularity of, of memory. So that's just to say there's, there's a great deal in the book that links forward, but it's also very much, I think, a book that's coming out of a writerly milieu and a, a, a writer, Marker himself, aged 28 when he publishes this, um, that is still haunted by the deaths of friends, the deaths of his generation uh, in the war. I'll stop there for a moment. Thanks. Brian, thank you very much indeed. Uh, as Brian himself intimated, enormous numbers of, of uh, pathways, if you like, out of the novel into the future work. And maybe you could tease out a little bit more this sense of um, the relationship between between the fiction, this early fiction, this sense of conflict-haunted essaying, shall we say, uh, attempting to catch on the page, and then this move into the fiction of, of La Jete, but with very many of the same themes in, in play. I would love to be able to do that, but it's actually quite difficult to, to do that because, I mean, the fact that this is Marker's one foray into fiction, it's not actually in, on film, although it's not actually his only foray into fiction because there is another film called L'Ambassade, or The Embassy, made in the uh, mid-1970s, which is effectively a fiction, a 30-minute fiction, but it's much less well-known than La Jetée. Uh, it's difficult. What, while Bryant sets out very convincingly certain structural elements of Le Coeur Net that one can seemingly transpose straight onto La Jetée, we need also to be careful ab- about making La Jetée the adaptation of the pre-existing novel because there are other pieces of work that Markham wrote, short pieces, like Till the End of Time in the catalogue, for example, that he then adapted into a radio play, and that when one hears the difference between the radio play and the written version, you can start also to see symbols and images worked through in that short text, which is a fiction, feeding into um, La Jetée. La Jetée itself is also a work that comes out of a... (coughs) failed collaboration between Marker and Alain René. Marker had worked with René on Toute la mémoire du monde, the documentary essay about the Bibliothèque Nationale, on uh, Les Statues Meurs aussi, and on working, editing the commentary of the camp survivor Jean Quairol pour for Nuit et Bruyard. And the project that came off the back of Nuit et Bruyard was ostensibly a documentary about Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And Marker and René started this project and it very quickly became evident that it was unmakeable as a documentary. René went on to make Hiroshima Mon Amour from the same project and Marker went on to make La Jetée. So there is in La Jetée a, a kind of confluence of various different influences <coughs> at the level both of fiction and documentary. But there is still this voice. And it's the writer's voice. It's the place of, of the, I guess, the fictional writer who had, at a, a, at a relatively young age, written his first novel, now writing for the screen, but fictionally for the screen. And it's that voice, I think, that we encounter. And interestingly, here's a link to 
Letter from Siberia. Letter from Siberia starts off demonstrably with that sound effect of a typewriter being hammered away at and the words coming up on the screen in a kind of font that looks like a typewriter font. Here we have something similar. Again, it's words on a page or words on a screen. There is in, in the gallery show a different edit of the opening of La Jete, um, in from the French well. in French from the Belgian archive. And, of course, the crucial element, um, which I'm sure you all know, is that La Jete, with one exception, is made up of still images. And perhaps, Chris, we could just, again, just talk briefly about, around the role of the still image in relation to text. I mean, one of the interesting things about considering Marker as a writer is that he is a writer who moves into making films. But what's very, very unusual about him is that it isn't the case where you have a writer of fiction who successfully makes the transition into making fiction films in the kind of sense of adaptation. What you see in Marker is a a kind of a desire not, not actually to lose the literary in transition. On one, in one level, a whole new genre has to be invented for him, which is the essay film, because the <coughs> essay film is not a common term, really, before Marker starts to, to work. It's not unknown, but it's, it's not common. And then there is this transportation also of uh, the, image as it, the image on the page, the still image on the page, which becomes part and parcel of his working process as a filmmaker, most famously in La Jete, but not exclusively in La Jete. Mm -hmm. And the incorporation of all sorts of what you might call extra-cinematic material as well. We find it in Letter from Siberia. Weird little infomercials being dropped in, animated (coughs) clips, publicity films, completely um, fraudulent, being brought into the flow of a film, almost Mm -hmm. as though you were reading a book made up of lots of different illustrations and ads. Mm. Brian, could I take up this idea that you mentioned around the relationship between, should we say, distance and intimacy? Because that sense of the voice and the action coming to us from afar is, again, a, a recurring motif, as, as you suggested, but also takes us very well into Sans Soleil as a strategy of, of this idea of the letter, which, of course, we've heard of already from Siberia. But, but that voice and, and the idea of simultaneous events, of, of the correspondences of the world being expressed in correspondence. I wonder if you could take that idea forward a little towards Sans Soleil. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things, as I say, that sort of survives out of the, the novel is, is almost a kind of lyric mode. Mm. But if we use the, the, the term essay, then clearly Marker's essayism is an extraordinarily kind of uh, varied and, and, and heteroclite sort of entity. Mm. It's, it's full of so many different types of, you know, it's almost as if he, the, the epistolary is, is one of them, the advert, you know, he's, he's not afraid of, um, uh, of mundane um, or denigrated literary forms. The aphorism, there are kind of aphoristic fragments that one can take out and that, that have a kind of preciousness about them. But he's quite willing to turn those aphorisms into advertising slogans. So one of those voices is this kind of intimate um, letter-writing voice, Mm. always from a distance, always or almost always displaced, um, sometimes displaced onto a woman's voice, Mm. um, sometimes displaced onto the voices of friends and and colleagues. And it's that sense, I think, certainly in in Sans Soleil, is Mm. this sense of, of being drawn in by this very intimate voice, 
that is also, at the same time, absolutely scattered and might include all kinds of elements, mm. all kinds of tones of voice. One of the things I really love about Marker mm. is the way that he can move from an extraordinarily kind of lyrical and figural sentence, really rich metaphorical, to something really casual. Mm. And it's partly a question of, of tone. There's, there's a tendency he has, I think, and I think it happens in, in Sansole, towards the end of a passage, of a, a written and spoken passage, of a kind of turn of phrase that is just casual, that somehow undercuts things. I can't quite think of one in Sansole now, but I can think of one in, in uh, the film about Medvedkin, Last Bolshevik. At the end of The Last Bolshevik, you, know, you have this kind of meditation on dinosaurs, uh, which, is, which is all about time and, and being out of time and, and, and running out of time. And he just says at the end, well, dinosaurs, kids love them. And it's, it's, that, it's a tiny thing. It's a tiny switch of, of register and tone of voice. But he does it all the time. And he does it throughout his career. It's in the essays in uh, Esprit. Um, it's, it's in the early essay films. It's even in the novel, really, a, a kind of willingness to engage. And some of it comes out of, of an embrace of a kind of American uh, casualness, not quite of slang, not quite of American slang but a kind of ease, a sort of verbal ease. And that's always there, I think, kind of framing or undercutting or somehow kind of slyly messing with the, the more literary voice. Mm. I think, I think you, Brian's absolutely right. This mixture of tone is interesting because it is true that Marker was... He spoke and wrote in English. Mm. He, was, he was very confident in English, and he translated from English... So if you look at the bibliography, his bibliography contains a fair number, I mean a good number of um, translations into French of books in English. And his English was interesting because <coughs> it was a kind of Americanized yeah. English. And it aimed for that kind of that aphoristic, that quite terse um, style. And I've, I've often wondered about the development of Marker as a writer, and I think one of the, the two poles is this early, very, very highly literate, quite mannered French, mm. and the development of another voice the Anglo marker, which is kind of tough guy American. He also, and the the story goes, during the war, one of his roles in the American army was as a translator from French to English. Um, But that's, I mean, he's he's on record. Among among his translations of the early 50s is a translation of a book by E.B. White and James Thurber. You know, he, he has a real taste for American humor. Yeah. And that was still there. You know, I mean, you, you uh, had many more um, encounters, meetings with and correspondence with, with Marker than, than I did, but I had a very fleeting correspondence with him a couple of years before he died. And his emails were full of essentially the kind of the idioms and the slang of America 50 years before. Mm-hmm. You know, he'd sort of retained... I mean, it wasn't as if he was, he was stuck in that, but he'd retained a kind of taste for the sort of American English that he encountered during the war. And it, it did have, there was a, a sort of performance of a kind of tough guy, sort of man of action persona that was fascinating. Mm. And I think that that's sort of present, in a way, in Sansoleil, alongside that much more poetic um, and epistolary mm. voice. Thinking about the way, what, what Brian was um, talking about in terms of the use of the letter, the epistolary mode, as a way of both introducing intimacy with the viewer stroke listener I am writing from a distant planet or a distant, a distant land but also at the same time using it as a way of um, putting a distance so you have this balance between distance and intimacy because it strikes me that if one thinks about the letter as this thing this literary artefact that 
has to have travelled in time and space to reach us. Somebody somewhere has written to us, put it in the post box, and it has taken time to travel across a certain amount of space to, to reach us. We are automatically engaging with something that is in the past while the voice is in the present. If we think about the filmic image, there is something analogous in the filmic image to the letter itself, which is an image. A filmic image is something that we experience in the present as we watch it, but which has already been filmed, edited, graded in the past. So we have this interesting relationship between past and present in the film image, in the filmic image per se, and also in the literary capsule that is a letter. So I think that Marker is using, when he uses this epistolary address, he's using it to put us in relationship with the moving image in a certain way, because the epistolary address itself has something of that play between distance in time and space within it. Brian, can we take this um, idea forward, if you like? Let's move towards the commentaire now, because as you yourself said, he's a publisher, he's a graphic designer, he engaged with the image on the page as well as on the screen. Um, and the essay form very much found its space there as, as well as in, in the moving image format. So could you take us in, in a, give us a sense of that landscape, if you could? Yeah. So, I mean, the thing that I want to um, talk about particularly is one of the essays in Marker's book, Commentaire, from 61, revised and, and added to with a second volume in 67. And it comes out of, in terms of, uh, you know, Chris mentioned earlier the... Um, the fictional newsreels, the imaginary newsreels that, that he was writing uh, for Esprit um, in the late 40s, early 50s. It's also published, Commentaire, by uh, Edition de Soy, and it has something, it's a kind of development of a particular visual sensibility that is already there in the much earlier essays, is already there in the book about Giraudoux, which is uh, published by the same publisher, and it's there most especially, and you see this in, in the, the Whitechapel exhibition, in the Petite Planète series um, that Marker uh, conceived and edited um, for that publisher. Um, can we just page forward so that you get a sense of the kind of visual texture of this essay, Amérique Rêve, which is the one piece in the first volume of Commentaire um, that is, in fact, imaginary. The rest are actual extant films. And this is an essay extraordinarily, even in my uh, desperately bad French, extraordinarily smart, very funny essay about, as it were, the kind of um, mythological texture of everyday life and popular culture um, in the United States. And it includes kind of uh, reflections on, on automobiles and uh, American food, on rodeos that happen at American prisons, um, on all kinds of oddities and a lot and a lot of examples um, of cartoons because Marker, as I'm sure you know, was throughout his career a great fan of and a great divisor of his own uh, cartoons. The thing that I just want to focus on, and it's a very simple point really, um, is the kind of uh, sensibility that's at work here in terms of layout, in terms of page design. If one of the things that Marker does as an essayist is this kind of... Uh, varied, almost kind of uh, cabinet of curiosities at the, at the level of um, content and the level of uh, literary style, the essays in Commentaire um, reproduce something of that variety and that kind of uh, very well measured um, but sometimes uh, deliberately chaotic um, visual style. 
One of the great things that Commentaire does is this particular use um, of the margin um, and of, the, of using illustrations from the films in the other essays, which actually are uh, taken from real films, but here using all kinds of disparate uh, material from advertising, from Hollywood movies, from the photographs of his friend William Klein. Um, there's an example late on, I think, of uh, a still from Klein's uh, 1958 film, um, Broadway by Light. And just in terms of layout, just in terms of page design, the use of kind of, this is a really good example, um, use of full bleed um, is really striking. It's something that he kind of uh, had already used in the Petit Planète books, but the use of, of the margin and a kind of full bleed illustration uh, as a kind of opportunity to put tiny <coughs> little, as it were, kind of visual footnotes in the margins at the edge or the corners um, of uh, the pages. This design, this particular edition, the 1961 edition uh, of Commentaire, is essentially the design model for uh, John Berger's Ways of Seeing. When Richard Hollis came to design Ways of Seeing, this was the model that he had in mind. This book in particular, and the kind of uh, constellation, as it were, um, of other books that Marker had already made uh, at this point. So what I guess Hollis picks up on is this idea that there's a really active and critical relationship between image and text. The text, the, the, these uh, images that function as almost kind of uh, little visual footnotes have a really kind of uh, critical relationship with the, the singular voice of the essay. So that's only to say, I mean, it's a very simple point, that one of the ways that Marker varies this voice, problem, problematizes, horrible word, complicates this voice, undercuts this voice, is also visual. It's also visual on the page. You know, there's, it's not... It's not mappable straightforwardly onto what's happening in the films in the, the use of uh, the, the, the relationship between voice uh, and image. But it, it overlaps in really interesting, really fertile ways. Mm. Well, Marker is one of these really, a really fascinating figure and a unique figure in many respects because we have to always think about him as being a writer and a filmmaker <laughs> and something else. And if we're just talking about this particular period of time where he's establishing himself as a writer in the late 40s to the mid-1950s, before he becomes a filmmaker, he is a writer and a book designer and a photographer. And this, I think this, um, this modifies his relationship to the written word as it modifies his relationship to the image because with Mark you get the image and the word, the page and the screen. And he's constantly trying to find forms in which he can use that kind of promiscuity between two different forms, between the book and the film, between the still and the moving image, between the literary image and the filmic image. And it's actually, when you look at the early phase of the career, the career between writing, when the writing feeds into filmmaking, you find the same exploration happening 50 or so, 60 or so years later, when what he's introduced to is that are the possibilities of combining word and image on the screen, on the computer screen. Just before we open out, Chris, I wonder if you could just... Uh if you like, give us the context for the other handout that we've got tonight, which is the essay on jazz. And this, I suppose, shows another aspect, a crucial aspect of Marker's life and work. As no one here needs telling, I'm sure, he was uh, one of the most under-photographed talents of the 20th century, and this was a conscious policy, but of course he was not by any means unconnected. He was perhaps the most connected filmmaker of the 20th century and had enormous correspondence with enormous numbers of people. But... 
But he also worked as a respondent, didn't he, in this case? He was asked to do something, and he was asked for interviews many times, and he asked for his photograph, and he would send his avatar, Guillaume, his cat. But could you tell us a little bit about this piece and yeah. also about what it sort of tells us about Marker? Yeah. What I came across um, online, this has partly been um, the product of the research that I was doing for the show and for the catalogue, was a piece that, I mean, it's true to say, as Gareth said, he didn't, he was uh, solicited a lot to contribute to this, that and the other and for interviews, and he never did them. He just basically refused most offers. What's interesting about this, and it's not a well-known piece at all, was that in 2001, as the little blurb I put at the top of this says, a French jazz fanzine effectively asked him to answer a question, which was, images gravitate around music, which has marked you most? And he replied in French. So I thought it would be fun to sort of translate this and have this for you to take away, partly because it's a real delight of a digest of kind of Markavian effects you know, in a relatively short sort of 500, 600 words and it's, it's pure marker I think what's interesting about it is that it tells a story about memory, marker is known in a way if, you, if marker has to be paraphrased as the representative of a certain set of uh, sensibility one of those key terms of the sensibility is, is memory, marker is the poet in film of memory um, and this is, a, this is a piece about memory and a very specific memory again coming back to the formative moment of the immediate post-war period there is also a technique in here which is interesting which is about Mark of the Writer which is a list, an enumeration almost a litany the words flowing it's also a text which is partly about the uh, redundancy of words about words failing to do justice to an image which is lodged in his mind and that it is an image summoned by a piece of music so you have word, music, image. You have a short film. And this seems to me to work like a short film. There is, of course, one needs to be cautious with Marker as well because he was, I always think of him as like the anti-Orson Welles, invisible whereas Welles was present. But he was no less of a self-mythologist than Welles was, I think, at least in my mind. And he says, oh, you know, you asked me to contribute this, and usually I don't, but this image came to mind, and bingo, here it is on the page. This is a very carefully worked page. And I look at the date, it's 2001, and I wonder, is this a piece that was an off-cut from the memory CD-ROM, which is full of his memories and full of these little beautiful pieces of writing attached to images, or is it a piece that may have been written for possible inclusion in the film that he was making in 2001, which is a f an essay film about the work of the interwar French photographer Denise Bellon, which has, again has got a beautiful mark of commentary on it. Or is it just a piece that, you know, fell out of his head onto the page out of solicitation? Nobody knows, but it's a, it's a lovely little piece, and it's never been translated into English before. Fantastic. Well, thank you, thank you both very much, Brian and Chris. Um, and I think the piece also crucially shows, of course, as both Brian and Chris have pointed out, Marker's incredible warmth as well, his playfulness, which runs across the page and across the screen. Um, we've got, obviously, some time for comments, questions, responses. Uh, respond to either what you've heard tonight, of course, Marker's body of work, the, the gallery show, whatever you uh, would like to take on, if there is anything. Thank you. Could I ask about the uh, narration on the films, uh, given the importance of relations between words and image? Um, I've only seen the English versions of the films which have narrations, sometimes with a sort of British accent, sometimes with an Amer American accent. 
Could you tell us something about who did those narrations and uh, what form they take in the French versions of the films? Well, one of the great, one of the one of my very late discoveries with La Jetée. I don't know how I didn't know this, but actually, it's it's quite easy, or it used to be quite easy to miss really salient facts uh, about Marker's work. I didn't realize until very very late that the the voiceover in English for La Jetée is William Klein, is the great American photographer uh, William Klein, uh, who sounds French um, in uh, 1962, and if you speak to him today, sounds like an old guy from New York. So it's fascinating because he, he had been in, in Paris for some years. He and Marker were very close friends as well as colleagues. Marker published Klein's first book. Um, he wrote the introductory text, which is one of his most beautiful texts, um, for Klein's film uh, Broadway by Light. Um, and Klein tells a story of going to meet Marker at Edition de Sailles for the first time, taking his, the prints of his, uh, his photographs because he wants to publish a book. And he said he walked into the office and there was a crazy man with toy ray guns stuck into his belt sitting behind a desk and all around the office were spaceships dangling from the ceiling and he thought, that's my guy, that, that's my publisher. So Klein, is a, Klein also appears in the film. Uh, he's one of the figures from the future figures that appear that loom out from the future. One of those is, uh, is Klein. So sometimes, and Chris will know, again know more about this, but sometimes, and from very early on, they're close collaborators. Yeah. Marker didn't like subtitles. The simple thing, he did, hated subtitles, and he wanted his films, like any filmmaker, to be seen by as many people as possible. So he cast voices. So he um, would cast English speakers and rewrite the commentary to the extent to make it feasible to say in English um, as a commentary and he did this this is why uh, the, the voice you probably know for Sans Soleil is that of a woman which is Alexandra Stewart the f- Canadian born French actress who had a career from the 1950s in, in France in French cinema married to Louis Mal for a while very close friend of Marcus um, also does the voiceover for the film that I just mentioned a bit earlier on about the um, photography of uh, Denise Bellon so he cast voices. He would cast he cast voices for the uh, Russian, the Japanese, and the German language versions of, of that. And this comes back to the other comment actually that uh, that somebody made about Marco's attention to music. One of the things that he's rarely written about, he's too little written about, is the attention to detail on the soundtrack. And part of this casting of voices in different languages, partly to avoid subtitles is um, part and parcel of the incredible attention to detail that he pays to the soundtrack of his films. Mm. I hope that's an answer to your question. Hi, I just had a question quickly about this commentaire. If he's provided credits for the images that he uses in the book or if they're just they're uncredited. Because I wonder about the first image in the first slide. That looks very much like Windsor McKay. Is that Windsor McKay's, the American animator? Are you talking about the animator who did the Dreams of a Rabbit Fiend? Yes, that's series? right. It, yeah, is, from a, it is that guy. Team, right. Okay. Right. But yeah. the title itself is a play on words, isn't it? It's America Dreams, yeah. not America, American Dream. Right, because McKay had very weird dreams about America, too, and this is a perfect example of it. He made all these cartoons of strange, elongated beds and motor cars going through and destroying New York City and so on and crushing all the buildings under its feet. And it, it's going to change my idea of Marker if, if it turns out that Windsor McKay is actually an influence on his, on his, uh, on his filmmaking. 
There's always more to find with Marker. That's what we've, that's what we've found. Um, he's like a fractal landscape. It constantly multiplies out. Just wondering um, why you chose to show the earlier cut of La Jetée at the gallery with the different opening sequence. Because um, it's never been seen before. It's never been projected before. Mm-hmm. And the, the logic of that room is aside from wanting it to be or it kind of constituting itself as a sort of chapel to a great, a great film um, a very unusual film as well is that we found that we, we could display material that had not been displayed before that was on the way to the final version so the film version very close but the opening sequence in movement completely transforms in many respects completely transforms the end of the film because the film famously wraps around itself but it wraps around itself now into a, in a different way with that cut. And also with the working documents, there are elements within that that didn't make the final cut. So it's a kind of... It's, it's a, to my mind, I, I, as someone who's work, written as a film critic for a long time, I, I really resist the idea of perfection, or the idea of perfection in filmmaking, maybe possible in other arts. I don't think it's possible in filmmaking. La Jatie is the one exception I would make. <laughs> I mean, I'm serious. It sounds a silly thing to say, but I'm actually serious about it. It's perfect also because it's absolutely inimitable. Nobody can copy that film. God knows people have tried, but it's mm-hmm. actually impossible. It seemed to me a wonderful opportunity to be able to display documents on the way to this kind of formal perfection, unrepeatable formal perfection. Does it allow the perfect version to exist only in the cinema, not in the gallery? Oh, I don't know about how to answer that question. <laughs> it's a good question, though, yeah. because there is uh, there's a definite uh, distinction between watching those static images with a projector whirring away behind your head, yeah. with a sense of movement and uh, and and immobility at the same time. The, the the movement at the start of the the version that you've shown it's a bit like opening Proust and discovering that you know Marcel's munching away on Madeleine's already you know, <laughs> on the first page. It's uh, it's very very and disconcerting. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. But I think the other thing that is, I've noticed with the projection of that particular print is actually the most beautiful print I've seen of La Jetée. There's something about its tonality. It's a, dig- a digital restoration. And there's something about the tonality of it being t- resolving the blacks and the whites into a really beautiful kind of grey, sort of drizzly grey that I, I like. Whereas every other copy of La Jetée that I've seen, such as the Criterion version, the black is a kind of jolty, heavy black, and the white is very white, and there's no intermediate tone. And I, I'm kind of struck by the beauty of that print. And I think a lot of other people are as well because the, 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 uh, somebody said to me the other evening that that, that room is the centrepiece of the show. Of course, a link between the last two questions and comments is, is of course, Terry Gilliam, I guess. I'm a London resident who's busy, of, of, as we know, with preparations for a very different kind of show. But um, as uh, we'll find when Chris publishes his book on La Jetée uh, in the BFI Classics uh, series... Terry Gilliam, of course, was successful in adapting La Jetée, shall we say, into 12 Monkeys, after many attempts from Hollywood studios had failed, not least because a a number of them at least said, Dear Mr. Marker, could we adapt your film La Jette? And, of course, they didn't get a reply. Chris will say, we'll save the other anecdotes for Chris's book, but um, a great animator recognising a great animator and giving permission for translation, shall we say. How did he react in a more political sense to post-war France? Well, it's not—it's not really one for me. I mean, my speculations on this are, are really 
quite thin, to be honest. I mean, they're, they're, because I don't really know, uh, and I don't know who does know, and who, who can write about in, in great detail um, his place in that particular milieu. I mean, the, it's, it's obvious that it's, it, it's, a, it's a quite special kind of set of circumstances and individuals at Esprit, um, and it's a particular kind of, just as there was in this country, a particular left Catholicism um, in the post-war period, with some of the same concerns, a real you know, anxious relationship with the, the French Communist Party, for example. But I guess this goes back to um, what the uh, policy question was suggesting, wasn't it, uh, around Marker's early affiliations during and post-war, and how then those became suppressed by his own uh, withdrawal of material, shall we say, and, and a redirection. Do you want to, could you take that? I mean, it's another. I mean, it's another evening's conversation because there is. Uh, my, my question back to you will be: Well, which part of post-war mm-hmm. France? The immediate post-war period, the period between 1947 and 1968, 1968 and afterwards. You meant immediate, mm-hmm. okay? Um, that that work hasn't been. It hasn't been done. The constellation of people around Esprit um, hasn't been. Um, historically documented in the way that we could get a portrait of the milieu that he emerges from. But I think it's also the case that he, as, as Brian mentioned, he emerges from a variety of different milieu. The, the intellectual anchor point is a décision du say, is esprit, uh, and the sensibility is there to be read in terms of <coughs> a concern that united, and this was true also, I think, in Italy as well, to a certain extent, the socially minded left-leaning Catholics and the Communist Party, which is what are we going to do with this country? Now our shame is complete, and now we have to rebuild. What are we going to do? It's that, and it's an activist sense. It's a militant sense, um, and it's a very interesting one. And it's momentary. It's, I mean, it, there's a real energy, which is partly to do with, I guess, a meeting of two uh, currents of faith. One which is a Catholic faith an activist, socially conscious faith, and the other which is communist faith. And for a moment, the voltage charge into the mainstream of French culture is incredible. I mean, absolutely incredible. And it produces the people it produces are extraordinary people. And I think Marker, he kind of maintains that all the way through his life, despite his, his loss of affiliation as, as, he, as he goes on in years. Because he has a moment of strong, strong affiliation when he's, a, when he's a militant filmmaker post-68, and many contacts in, in the international leftist movement throughout his life. But, but towards the end of his life, he's describing himself as an anarchist. A, a left anarchist, by the way. Not a right-wing anarchist. One thing that emerged out of just, bef- uh, just after his death, the teenage dalliance with the Vichy regime. His father was a functionary in Vichy and moved the family to Vichy. And what was uncovered uh, were three articles he'd written in a magazine when he was 19, 20 years old supporting uh, the Vichy government in its very, very early stages. It's very, very... It should be, this should be emphasised. It's very early stages. Pro-Pétain. As France becomes occupied by the Germans and the sense that what the French need to do is manage to govern themselves while being occupied. And that dalliance is literally a dalliance and um, he joins the resistance. But Marker's attitude towards his past was complicated, probably because there was this in his past, in his teenage past. And then he would bury films or disallow films to be circulated because of what he saw as too close uh, uh, an endorsement of um, totalitarian regimes, so such are the films about um, USSR, Siberia, or Sunday in Peking. So there is a rewriting of his own history as he goes through it. 
Um, let's just go back to the gentleman's question about uh, the image credits. And it's kind of thrilling to see little Nemo up on the screen in that context. So I was just wondering about uh, Chris Marker as um, collector, um, maybe in, in habit, but also creatively, like Chris Marker the collector. Brian, as, as a curator of a cabinet of curiosity yourself, how would you like to think of Marker in rivalrous mode? <laughs> um, it's, it's obviously something that's um, in the later work, uh, and in particular in in memory. Um, he uses the image of, of the museum uh, as a kind of structuring uh, principle. And there is, of course, you know, the, the wonderful footage, um, Agnes Varda's footage, um, of his studio as this extraordinary kind of time machine that, that's pulling into itself uh, images from all over the world, from, from his own biography, objects, artifacts, books, DVDs, Many, many screens showing internet, TV from all over the place, all of that. So there, there are actually two models of, at least models of, of what collecting might mean, and they're not necessarily the same. They don't necessarily overlap, I don't think. I really love that kind of sense of a kind of bricolage. You know, he, he said more than once, I, I have been nothing but a bricoleur. Um, but that seems to me different from the vision of the museum. Obviously, there's museums earlier on, the museum in, in La Jete, but it seems to me different from the vision of the museum that you get later on with a memory. And I remember being a little bit sort of dismayed that the museum should be the kind of model that Marker was, was organizing the late digital work around. It seemed, uh, not, it, seemed, it seemed a little too familiar. So I'm kind of interested to know in a, in a curatorial uh, position, because it's the it's the most it's the first room at the Whitechapel show. You know, you're you're automatically there in, as it were, the museum of Marker's mind, um, and it's the works that that very much, including earlier works like um, uh, Statues Also Die. Um, so, I don't feel a need to justify um, Marker's relationship to the museum because I think it comes back to and it prolongs something that I was talking about in relationship to that post-war political thing. Culture was one of the sites where France would rebuild itself, or at least its intellectual caste would rebuild itself. And the museum was one of those spaces. I mean, the French, as my limited knowledge of the history of the museum, the French have a particular relationship to the museum because of the Republican founding of the Louvre, which is supposed to be one of the first museums open to the people. So there is the, the, in, in French culture, the museum is already a kind of politically charged site. And that generation, I mean, I know this from speaking to Marker, I know it from speaking to his close friend Agnès Varda as well. The museum is a special place for them. I mean, it's a, no matter how small or large, it's valuable for all the reasons that might make it seem appear quite a conservative mm. institution, an institutional space. But I think they're... they're historical memories charge it otherwise as well um, and also I think partly but that you know the stage that marker comes to make something like um, the memory CD-ROM which is a curious museum of a kind because it's almost as imme immediately it's released as a CD-ROM it's antiquated as a form and as a museum space it's, it's very very odd and it's almost something knowing about that but I think by that time marker is fully aware of um, reference points like André Malraux, like Walter Benjamin, 
um, like Abby Warburg as well, and is working in a similar way, which is the museum is simply a space in which one exercises a developed form of bricolage, mm. I think. It's the boundary okay. to that bricolage. Very, very good. But do join me in thanking for all their comments and engagement with Marker over a period of time, both Chris and Brian. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. <laughs>